I do want to also make one comment. Um, and I, I just want to just express uh, thanks to so many of you who have, uh, over the past year, who have uh, expressed your uh, support for um, our family. Um, I don't like to dwell on it, but my wife died a year ago, and so um, it's, it's much appreciated. Every week we have a part of the announcements where we focus on news and prophecy. Last week, for example, we had a, a, a news and prophecy item entitled Disaster Upon Disaster. And it reads like this, in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, God warns today's Israelite-descended nations of the fate coming upon them because they've rejected him and, and him and his laws. And it goes on to, uh, to, to cite a recent CNN article entitled Disaster Upon Disaster. It talks about some of the wildfires in the, uh, in the West and the impact. And we focus many times on the disasters, on the things that are happening in our world that are uh, disastrous calamities that are taking place, whether it be disease or war or, or famine or one type or another of these major disasters. And it's easy for us, I think, in the mind of some people, perhaps you know people like this, maybe you have friends or family who consider you to be uh, too focused on the disasters that are happening around us. In fact, you can almost be like like Chicken Little. Now, if you don't know the story of Chicken Little, I'm going to read it to you. It goes something like this. Chicken Little was in the woods one day when an acorn fell on her head. It scared her so much, she trembled all over. She shook so hard, half her feathers fell out. Help, help, the sky is falling, I have to go tell the king, Chicken Little said. So she ran in great fright to tell the king, and along the way, she met Henny Penny. Henny Penny said, where are you going, Chicken Little? And Chicken Little said, oh, help, the sky is falling. Henny Penny said, how do you know? And Chicken Little said, I saw it with my own eyes, and I heard it with my own ears, and part of it fell on my head. Henny Penny said, this is terrible, just terrible, we'd better hurry up. So they both ran away as fast as they could. Soon they met Ducky Lucky. Ducky Lucky said, Where are you going, Chicken Little and Henny Penny? Chicken Little and Henny Penny together said, The sky is falling, the sky is falling, we're going to tell the king. Ducky Lucky said, Well, how do you know? Chicken Little said, I saw with my own eyes and heard it with my, oops, almost missed the voice there, and heard it with my own ears and part of it fell on my head. Ducky Lucky said, Oh dear, oh dear, we better run, quack. Uh, so it doesn't actually say that, but I added the quack in just so you know that's Ducky Lucky. So they all ran down the road as fast as they could. Soon they met Goosey Lucy walking down the roadside. Goosey Lucy said, hello there, where are you all going in such a hurry? Chicken Little said, we're running for our lives. Henny Penny said, the sky is falling. And Ducky Lucky said, and we're running to tell the king. Goosey Lucy then said, well, how do you know the sky is falling? Chicken Little said, I saw it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears, and part of it fell on my head. Goosey Lucy said, Oh no, then I'd better run with you. And, at, and they all ran in great fright across the field. Before long, they met Turkey Lurky, Lurky strutting back and forth. Turkey Lurky said, 
Hello there, Chicken Little, Henny Penny, Ducky Lucky, and Goosey Lucy. Where are you all going in such a hurry? Chicken Little said, Help, help! Henny Penny said, We're running for our lives. Ducky Lucky said, The sky is falling. And Goosey Lucy said, And we're running to tell the king. And Turkey Lucky said, Well, how do you know the sky is falling? Chicken Little said, I saw it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears and part of it fell on my head. Turkey Lurkey said, Oh dear, I always suspected the sky would fall someday. I'd better run with you. So they all ran with all their might until they met Foxy Loxy. Foxy Loxy said, Well, well, where are you rushing on such a fine day? Chicken Little, Henny Pitty, Ducky Lucky, Goosey Lucy, and Turkey Lurkey together said, Help, help, it's not a fine day at all. The sky is falling and we're running to tell the king. Foxy Loxy said, How do you know the sky is falling? Chicken Little said, I saw it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears and part of it fell on my head. Foxy Loxy said, I see. Well then, follow me and I'll show you the way to the king. So Foxy Loxy led Chicken Little, Henny Penny, Ducky Lucky, Goosey Lucy, and Turkey Lurkey across a field and through the woods. He led them straight to his den, and they never saw the king to tell him that the sky is falling. And that's the story of Chicken Little. Now, we can all become paralyzed with fear, like Chicken Little, uh, running around like crazy, and becoming frightened by every declaration of disaster. On the other hand, do we take what we see and what we know is coming too lightly? You know, this is a challenge that we face all the time, for example, with weather situations. Hurricanes, snowstorms, heat, drought, flooding, war, disease. And so we see these things happening, and we, we hear of disasters but how should we think about these these things as they're happening? Can we, in a sense, maybe be like our neighbors and get tired of the whole thing and feel like, here we go again, another disaster, the sky is falling, I've heard it all before, and we end up becoming a little bit blasé about the whole thing. So what what do we think about disasters and, and how do we how do we look at prophecy? How do we look at natural cycles of the earth, and and also approach the dramatic prophecies of the Bible and what we see happening in the world around us. I want to look at some examples from the Bible and see what we can learn today. And the title of the sermon is Chicken Little and Scoffers in the Last Days, What Can We Learn? There's your title. And as we turn to begin in Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to do a quick... Thing here, Okay, Genesis chapter 6. So what I want to do is begin by looking at some examples, and then we're going to draw a conclusion from it, and then we're going to see how it applies to us. So Genesis chapter 6, we read of a time when there was a man who you might say, at least for some around him, was like Chicken Little, because... We read how, in the first part of Genesis chapter 6, we read how God told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth. Uh, Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6, 
We read, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. He told him to make an ark. And he says, verse 17, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And he tells them to bring Every living thing of all flesh you shall bring, two of every sort, and we have the other instructions. Now we know that some time passed, perhaps 100, 120 years maybe, there's some different uh, uh, descriptions of how long it, it would have been, but it was many, many, many decades, certainly, that Noah was then in preparation, and while he was, he, he preached about what he was doing. And you can only imagine the mockery that would have, that would have occurred to someone who said, a flood is coming, I'm building an ark to save my family, and this is what's going to happen. Uh, some of you might remember Bill Cosby's uh, little, uh, what would you call it, little skit on the whole thing about building an ark. And it's quite humorous when you think about the fact that he makes, he makes a, a, you know, a, quite a, a humorous act out of it where, where he says, where God tells him, you know, build an ark, and he says, what's an ark? What are we talking about? And, and uh, makes a big, a big joke about it because it does seem a little bit nonsensical, doesn't it? In terms of just our everyday experience, we've never experienced floods so great that it destroys all mankind off the face of the earth. So you can just imagine what it would have been like for Noah to say, here's what's going to happen. But, it, but it, in the reality, it did happen, didn't it? It did happen. Because we read here in chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and forty nights. And on that very same day, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, and they were they were saved. So the, the point is this, and I'm, I'm going to reiterate this point as we see some examples here. The point is this, is that much of our life is mundane. We get up in the morning, we go about our business, and then we go to bed, and we do it again another day. So it can seem for us and for everybody around us that life is going to go on just as it always has. But in reality, human history is not only filled with day after day after day creeping this petty pace, but it's also filled with dramatic events that in a matter of moments, hours, or or days changes everything. And here we find an account of something where life had gone on and gone on and gone on, but in a matter of a short period of time, a matter of hours, everything was changed. So dramatic events do happen that overnight change the world. And here's, here's an example. But there are others. Let's go to, for example, Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 here. In Leviticus 26, we read of a of the, the, the blessings and cursings chapter here. Excuse me. 
We read in the first part of the chapter that God says, If you walk in my statutes, verse 3, and keep my commandments perform them, then I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. In a sense, what you're reading about here in the first part of the chapter is life going on being pretty good. If you obey me, I'm going to give you days of plenty and prosperity. But then we read in the latter part of the chapter something different. He says, verse 14, If you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. He says, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. In other words, dramatic events will change everything, and you will no longer have days of prosperity, but you will have major calamity. And life will change. And we know that's what happened. Because we can read in 2 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings 17, we read about the end of the story here for, uh, for Israel. We read verse 5 of 2 Kings chapter 17. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria. He besieged it for three years. But there came a time when the besieging was over, and Israel was dragged into captivity. We know this took a period of, of, of years. This is actually, we know it was, it was a, a, a number of years. There were multiple waves of captivity. But there came a time when the disaster was done, the calamity was done, and their life after 700, say, years of day in, day out, was, it was over. It was different. Never again to return to the way it was. In a very short period of time, we read here, Verse uh, 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. They had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made, and they secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And it goes on and lists their, their sins. But the bottom line is, there came a day when disaster came upon them and changed everything. Now, we, we understand this, this principle from our own lives, don't we? In fact, even from our the current news event. Because I would dare say that about six months ago, six months ago, people who were walking the streets of Kiev, for example, compared, their life compared to today wouldn't you say is dramatically different? Just in a matter of, of months. In fact, you could, pro- you could probably shorten that time frame to a matter of, of days, couldn't you, if you would isolate the days. And, 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 and frankly, throughout much of Europe, the same. I'm, I, I'm sure in the countries adjoining Ukraine that are, have now tens of thousands of refugees, everything is different like that, really, in a very short period of time. So the point is this, is that history is made up, I will repeat, of day after day after day. But it's also made up of dramatic, dramatic events, dramatic windows of time that 
change everything. This is a fact of history. This is a fact of history. Now, I want to give you one more that I, I find interesting in trying to identify some examples of what I'm talking about today, and that is the destruction of Nineveh. If we go to Nahum, go to Nahum. Now, you remember about, uh, what, 150 years earlier, Jonah had prophesied to, to Nineveh that they would be destroyed unless they repented before God, and they did. Um, and we know that story, but here we find, we find something different. Nahum's prophecy, which befell Assyria, this one we find we find a, bit, find a bit different. I'm just going to pull out a few different verses. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, because these verses tell the story of what, of what happened to, to Nineveh. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. I should... Uh, preface this by going back to verse 1, where we read this is indeed a, bur- a prophecy against Nineveh. Verse 1, the, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. And so you find, you find these, these verses that identify uh, how God will destroy Nineveh, or he'll, he will facilitate the destruction of Nineveh, and even how he'll, it'll happen. In this case, it identifies a, a flood that will come upon Nineveh. Uh, verse 10, for while tangled like thorns, or while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. So we read that it, Nineveh would be destroyed while her inhabitants were drunken like drunkards. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. We have this notation that Nineveh would be unprotected. A fire will devour the bars of her gates. And we have one more that is, is specific in verse 19. We read, Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? So, the down, so Nineveh would never recover. Um, their injury has no healing, as we, as, as we read here. Uh, the downfall of Nineveh would come with remarkable ease. I, I missed one in verse 12. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. And so we, we read, I just gave a sample of some of the prophecies that identified the destruction of, of Nineveh. Now, understand, Nineveh was a, a, a major uh, city that goes all the way back to the time of, of Nimrod. It served as the capital of the Assyrian Empire for, uh, for hundreds of years. And in fact, uh, you're probably aware of this, but skeptics, uh, skeptics actually did not believe in the existence of Nineveh because its destruction was so complete. I want to read a little bit about, uh, about Nineveh from a couple of different resources, Nelson's Bible Dictionary, for example, and a couple others here. But I'll just read some highlights. Um, British archaeologist A.H. Liard excavated the site in 1845 to 1854. He unearthed the great palace of King Sargon, along with a library of over 22,000 cuneiform documents. And, of course, King Sargon is mentioned by Isaiah 
in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. Here's, here's a, a sense of the, of the size and how massive Nineveh was. Now, in the day of Sennacherib, the wall around Nineveh was 40 to 50 feet high. And it extended for 4 kilometers along the Tigris River and for 13 kilometers around the inner city. So it was a massive, massive uh, uh, a city that was able to defend against great attack from marauders. We're talking about massive gates. We can't, 40 to 50, I'm going to say, someone else might be better than me at estimating this, but I'm going to say we're talking about walls that are approximately that high. I'm, go, I'm going to guess at the top here that's about 45 feet high. Um, we can take a little uh, gander afterwards. Well, each of those blocks is probably about 8 inches high, right? We can do a little calculation. I shouldn't say that because now nobody's going to be listening to what I, I'm saying. Everybody's going to be counting the blocks, and you're not even going to uh, going to be listening. But we're talking about about that high, and um, it was it was like a sort of a it wasn't a square because it went along the river. It was more of a of a triangle. Um, the city had 15 main gates, five of which have been excavated. Each of the gates was guarded by stone bull statues by a stone bull statue, both inside and outside the walls. Sennacherib created parks, a botanical garden, a zoo. He built a water system containing the oldest aqueduct in history at Jerwan across the Gomel River. Um, the ruins of Nineveh, goes on to say, are surrounded by the remains of a massive stone and mud brick wall dating from around 700 B.C. Um, this, this article is talking about how the wall was, in terms of how, how wide, I was trying to find how wide it was, and it, this is one thing it says. It says, there is a, an, a stone retaining wall about 20 feet high, surmounted by a mud brick wall about 33 feet high, and about 49 feet thick. So you can imagine the wall, as I say, 50 feet by altogether, if you include the retaining wall, plus the upper part, about 40 feet high and about 40 feet wide. That's the massiveness. Did I just make up a word? Um, that's the size of these walls and why it was considered basically impregnable. In 612, however, Nabopolassar united the Babylonian army with an army of Medes and Scythians and led a campaign which captured the Assyrian citadels in the north. And then the Babylonian army laid siege to Nineveh, but the walls of the city were too strong for battering rams. Of course, a 40-thick wall. What does a battering ram do against a 40-foot-thick wall? It's not even, it doesn't even make a, a dent. And um, it says the walls were too strong for battering rams, so they decided to try and starve the people out. And after a three-month month siege... Rain fell in such abundance that the waters of the Tigris inundated part of the city and overturned one of its walls for a distance of 20 stades, or two and a quarter miles. Um, you can read more about the history and what they did, apparently. And I, there are some different accounts of this, and uh, you'll, you'll read different things. But usually what figures into the accounts, and even historically, um, uh, Diodorus Siculus uh, writes about a, a massive flooding, rainstorm, where it rained day after day after day. And some accounts claim that the Babylonians actually built a reservoir to collect the water, and then they broke open the reservoir to go against the city walls. There, there's a little bit of, of debate about that. But what always figures in to the destruction of, Babel, of, of Nineveh is that the walls were overcome by, by massive flooding. 
Okay, and then not only that, but because there was an, apparently there was an oracle that said that they would, that it would only fall, Babylon, I mean, the Nineveh would only fall after, what does it say? Nineveh should never be taken until the river became its enemy. And the, so the story goes that the king, when the walls collapsed as they were trying to flee into the city center, he, he considered that he had no chance to live anymore barricaded himself inside his palace with his eunuchs and harem, etc., and burned himself all up, basically gave away the city because the oracle was coming true. Now, there's, a, you know, there's, all, there's these different stories about it, but what's interesting is the fact that the city, which ultimately, what, about 100 years later, 200 years after its capture, uh, Xenophon's 10,000 marched over this the mounds, that had been Nineveh, and they never suspected that they were Nineveh was anywhere to be seen because it was not known. In fact, as I said, up until the 1800s, with, with the excavations, it was considered to probably not even exist at all. That was how complete its destruction was. Now, why am I taking about 10 minutes to talk about this, just to whet your appetite for studying more? It's because as far as the Ninevites were concerned, things would go on. Day after day after day, life would continue. But a time came, a day came, when everything changed. And the disaster was so great that life ceased to happen as it had been up to that point. What seemed impossible, a catastrophe too unbelievable to imagine, happened. Nineveh fell, it was destroyed, and was virtually erased from memory. I want to give you one more example. Matthew 24 in Matthew 24, we we read this and and we're we're familiar with it because we we, we read it often. I just want to highlight this as an example, illustrating and reinforcing what I'm talking about. Matthew 24, we read verse one. How Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Why did they show him the buildings of the temple? And why, why do we have this conversation? Because we see Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. To us, we're used to reading that, so we think, okay, yeah, fair enough. We know that in 70 AD that, that uh, Jerusalem fell. But for them, it, it must have been almost inconceivable. Let me read you a little bit about Jerusalem and the temple in particular, I should say. A thousand priests. This is from a book. Um, I think it's been cited. On, I know Mr. DeSimone um, read from it. We, we, we quoted it in the, one of the lessons we have in our uh, the Living Education Online courses. But let me read you a little bit about what his book, this is um, Simon Montefiore, Montefiore, wrote in a book titled Jerusalem, the Biography. I think you cited this, uh, Mr. DeSimone, at some point in the last year or two. Let me read you what it says. A thousand priests were trained as builders. Lebanese cedar forests were felled. The beams floated down the coast. At quarries around Jerusalem, the massive ashlar stones, gleaming yellow and almost white limestone, were marked and cut out. A thousand wagons were amassed, but the stones were gargantuan. In the tunnels alongside the Temple Mount, there is one stone, 44.6 feet long, 11 feet high, that weighs 600 tons. That's how massive this particular stone was. No din, no hammering had polluted the building 
of Solomon's temple. So Herod ensured that everything was readied off-site and silently slotted into place. The Holy of Holies was ready in two years, but the entire complex was not completed for 80 years. Herod dug down to the foundation rock and built from there. He expanded the esplanade of the Temple Mount to the south, filling the space with a substructure held up by 88 pillars and 12 vaulted arches, now called Solomon's Stables, to create a three-acre platform twice as large as the Roman Forum. The design of the temple, supervised by the king and his anonymous architects, showed a brilliant understanding of space and theater. Dazzling and awe-inspiring, Herod's temple was covered all over with plates of gold, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a fiery splendor so bright that visitors had to look away. Arriving in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, it reared up, quote, like a mountain covered with snow. He's citing, uh, I think, Josephus, if I remember correctly. This was the temple that Jesus knew and Titus destroyed. Here's another account from the uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, an article about the temple. An account of this discussion is preserved in the works of Tacitus, one of the greatest of Roman historians. It is said that Titus, who called the council, declared that the first thing to decide is whether or not to destroy the temple. This was before they ultimately uh, uh, raised the city. So they were just, he and his generals are talking about what to do about the temple because as as it says here in this particular uh, uh, citation, it says a few, I'm sorry, let me back up. It is said that Titus, who called the council, declared that the first thing to decide is whether or not to destroy the temple, one of man's consummate building achievements. A few of the officers felt that it would not be right to destroy a holy building renowned as one of the greatest products of human endeavor. That, that's how it was considered. It was considered one of the greatest uh, that was considered one of the mar- architectural marvels of the Roman Empire. In fact, at that time, um, apparently, Jerusalem was also one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Between uh, Estimates go between 150,000 to 200,000 citizens in its surrounding. It was one of the biggest, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire of, of the time. So... It says the fact that this, from this article in a uh, biblical archaeology review, says the fact that hardened army officers at the end of a brutal war were troubled by the question of how to proceed after their conquest is an eloquent tribute to the unparalleled majesty of the temple and the temple mount. Above all, it was imperative that this huge congregation be able to visit the temple mount at one and the same time, and and it goes on from there. So when we read, Jesus said to them, verse two. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was packed with meaning for the disciples. Hard to imagine as they went about their everyday affairs, visiting the temple, walking throughout the city. But the day came that it happened. The day came that the prophecy that Christ made at that point came to to pass. You know, an amazingly large amount of dramatic events in history were foretold by, by God through his world, through his word, and, and yet, and we read them, and we talk about them, and yet our world goes on as if nothing will ever change. We get up in the morning, as I said, go about our business, go home, go to bed, and get up for another day. But dramatic events have happened through history, 
even have been used by God for his purpose. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6, and as you do, I want to just relate to you one more example. Revelation chapter 6. It's a book titled Catastrophe by David Keyes. If you have the opportunity to pick it up, I would highly suggest it. Trying to summarize how the book uh, addresses this issue of catastrophic, dramatic events that changed the world in a very short period of time. It's hard to summarize the book, and as I was As I was thinking about it, I actually ran across some of the reviews that describe it, and I think they probably do it better than I could. So let me read you one of the reviews. Um, It was a catastrophe without precedent in recorded history for months on end, starting in A.D. 535. A strange, dusky haze robbed much of the earth of normal sunlight. Crops failed in Asia and the Middle East as global weather patterns radically altered. Bubonic plague exploding out of Africa wiped out entire populations in Europe. Flood and drought brought ancient cultures to the brink of collapse. In a matter of decades, the old order died, and a new world, essentially the modern world as we know it today, began to emerge, the review goes in the summary. In this fascinating, groundbreaking, totally accessible book, archaeological journalist David Keyes dramatically reconstructs the global chain of revolutions that began in the catastrophe of A.D. 535, then offers a definitive explanation of how and why this cataclysm occurred on that momentous day centuries ago. I will interrupt this to explain what he postulates, and that is that there was a a volcano that uh, exploded, a Krakatoa-like volcano in Indonesia. And we're familiar with that because that's that's actually the uh, the root of a, some modern disasters. But he he recounts uh, legends as well as descriptions of of weather and uh, and so on throughout the world that happened in 535 A.D. Um, one uh, one of them I think it mentions in here. One was that across Europe they called it the Year of Darkness. Where there was no no crops grew, it was a it was a smoky, dusky haze that was around everything for over a over a year. Um, and what he talks about is the is from that point in time, it was as if the old order went away, the order of of the Roman Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the dominance of Egypt, all that passed away. The ancient world. And it gave way to the rise of the Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Saxon dominance that began at that time, as, as well as some, a, a change in China, where some of the, the existing dynasties were overturned and a major uh, change happened in, in China and other parts in South America and other parts throughout the world. Suffice it to say that his whole book is about the fact that within a matter of, of, of a year, our world changed. Now, what he does in the latter part of the book is he, he looks at potential uh, dramatic change in our world today that could also could come about as a result of some uh, dramatic explosion. For example, he talks about the Yellowstone uh, caldera and what would happen if the Yellowstone caldera would blow and how it would similarly change the, the, the course of human history within a matter of, of 
moments or, or hours or certainly days as the impact spread around the world. If you have an opportunity to uh, to pick it up, I'd highly recommend it because it helps us to understand a couple of things. One is how how our world is 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 so uh, is so dependent upon life as we know it, and how very quickly it can change. It also gives a really fascinating uh, a glimpse of how our modern world came to be and how God actually fulfills prophecies, frankly, through um, giving the, the upper hand, you might say, to the, the, the children of Israel and their descendants. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. I was going to read more of the review, but I, I think you get the point. Revelation chapter 6. At the end of days, catastrophes will be part of God's final plan for judgment on the earth. Now, we can, you know, we, we can be poo-pooed by somebody, uh, you know, people who may say, well, you're just being like Chicken Little, but the reality is the sky will fall. And we read about it here in Revelation chapter 6, for example. Revelation chapter 6, I saw when the Lamb heard open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I look, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Religiously speaking, there will, there will come a religious conquering, if this is the word it's, that's used here, the English word, that will turn our world upside down. The freedom that we are able to exercise today will go away. Within a matter of a short period of time, as, as, as we read here, things will change in terms of, I'll say, I'll just use a broad term, religion, without even going into more detail. Verse 3, and when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. I mean, that's such a powerful phrase, isn't it? It doesn't say to hear of a rumor of war. It doesn't say to, to, to incite war, rebellion. It says, take peace from the earth. What does that mean? Well, we can know when we read about the time of Noah, right? Because it says wickedness filled the earth. What will it be like when peace is taken from the earth? It's going to happen someday. And it's not just... It's not just a matter of saying the sky is falling. There will come a time when this will happen. And the world will be a different place in a very short order. We read verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. We read about poverty. We, we haven't experienced poverty and scarcity like we read about here. Verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and a power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and with, by the beasts of the earth. So we read about this widespread death on the earth, disease, plague, etc. If we go across the page to chapter 8, we read of more catastrophe as the seventh seal is open, verse 1. 
We read, when it was open, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. We read about these trumpets being blown here at verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. In a matter of a very short period of time, we see disaster come upon the earth that will change everything. The world will, will be will be very different very quickly as this catastrophe comes upon the earth. Verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a, th- a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So we read about these catastrophes as the seventh seal has opened is opened here in Revelation chapter 8. Human history has pivoted on dramatic catastrophes from the beginning. Moments have turned nations upside down and changed the course of history. And, you know, I think we can relate this even to our personal lives when we think of moments that have changed everything for us. I remember the moment uh, that I was married. My my father was performing the, the wedding, and as he was saying, you this and that and all these very serious sounding words, I began to think, whoa, this is really heavy. You know, I mean, wow. Hmm. Wow. And I felt this weight descend on my shoulders. Whoa, this is heavy stuff. And at that moment, life changed. Because from that moment on, I was responsible for my young bride. It, moments change us, don't they? Just, just like that, and things are different. It can happen sometimes in, in ways that, that bring sorrow. It can happen sometimes in ways that bring joy. A baby is born, and from that moment on, your life is not the same. Your life revolves. You cannot, you cannot live a day. You can't live sometimes, you know, an hour or moments without thinking of that, of that little one that is now your responsibility. Your life changes as that baby is born even in a way that's different from when it's still in the womb. It changes from the moment that it's, it cries its first cry, doesn't it? So we, we can understand this concept, I think, even in our personal lives. Maybe when we get a new job or we lose a job or you, you can think of all the different, you know, the different examples of what I'm talking about. This is the reality that we know from life. But it can seem sometimes... Like our life just is mundane and going on from day to day because that's what most of the time is is like. Now, I want to transition then with that in mind, that point made, I I hope that you understand the point I'm trying to make, then what do we do about it? What do we do in order to prepare for the catastrophes, for the dramatic times that are ahead of us? What's interesting is Matthew 24, if we go back to Matthew 24, Matthew 24 and then chapter 25 and chapter 26 are all about the answer to this question. What to do in difficult times, in emergency, in traumatic times of the end. So what I'm going to do is just give some, let's say some principles to keep in mind with the understanding that we will have cataclysms. We will have catastrophes. We will be facing, at some point, the sky will fall. 
And, and so how do we prepare for it? So let's just look at some, some principles here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. So because there will be this catastrophe, we read verse 21 about great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Certainly this qualifies as a dramatic catastrophic experience for the earth unless those days were shortened no flesh will be saved but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened so because of that then verse 23 if anyone says to you look here is the christ or there do not believe it for false christs and false prophets will rise and even show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect so number one number one as we prepare for catastrophe Learn to consider the source. Learn to consider the source. You know, we've been through that over the past couple of years with everything surrounding COVID and all the parameters that we have, uh, we've gone through. You know, our actions, personal actions must reflect prudence versus media hype. And well, you need to recognize that everybody has something to sell. Everybody has something to sell. Now, maybe that's cynical, but that's but that seems to be the way it is. Everybody who has a point of view is trying to promote a point of view, whether it's even just getting your eyes on their material. Now, everybody has uh, has a, a desire to gain uh, uh, what would you say acceptance of their of their point of view. And for us, we have to, we have to recognize that God has given us guidelines in His Word so we're not deceived. We, we need to be careful, and I, I'm not, now I'm, I'm looking forward. We need to be, we need to be careful as to who we believe. We need to consider the source. Um, we had a, uh, an article I was just looking and thinking about, uh, how to enunciate this a little bit. And there was an article uh, about a year and a half ago, January 2021, written by Mr. Weston, Three Pillars of Stability in Difficult Times, where he, he actually addresses this. Um, the third point, he, talk, he poses the question, where is God working? And how do, we, how do we ascertain to whom we should listen? And then he talks about some principles that we can apply towards that. So I'll leave it at that. I think that's something that could, could actually involve uh, more time, but I will just bring it out as something that's mentioned right here. We need to be aware of the source of our information. And this is what we read here. He says, verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. Be careful that we're not easily misled. Look at the fruits. Who are we listening to? What What, what voice are we listening to? And we would hope Rather than that within, within the church, that we would have a, a solid and a, a, a mature and a reasonable voice of leadership. I believe that we do, and I believe that uh, Mr. Weston and others within you know, our administration that make decisions as to how we proceed are doing so with, with wisdom, with, with thought, with God's guidance. And I, I think we have to be able to we have to just be careful that we don't just jump off into different directions because we read an article, because we read um, an opinion. Be, be, be careful that we don't get carried away 
Because in our world of information, the job of many people is to gather a following. And, and we're here because we believe that God is guiding what's happening, what we're doing, and the course of action. And I think that's important to, to consider. Okay, so that's one that we read right here. He says, be very careful about who you, who you believe. For as the lightning, verse 27, comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming, will, will, I'm sorry, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be, will be gathered together. So there, it will be clear to those who are tuned in as they should be. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Another principle in preparing for the end and for the dramatic, catastrophic events as we approach the end. Second Peter chapter three. Don't become a cynical scoffer. Don't become a cynical scoffer. Second Peter chapter three verse one. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. To my point that I'm making today, frankly. Now, what I find interesting about this, we, we read through this very quickly, but if this is true, we are going to face a pressure. We are going to face a powerful force that will confront us with the pressure that, look, all that we believe is not going to happen. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, I, yes, you would say to some degree scoffers are going to come in the last, are, are today, and I think it's ever growing, certainly. But I think you and I aren't necessarily in daily life pressured as ultimately I think we will be. In other words, this is a, this is talking about a, a characteristic of the last day that will be, it's so noteworthy that it's, it's placed here in the scriptures. What we believe about the return of Jesus Christ will not just become something that people have to sort of say, yeah, right, and then let you be, but it will be, it will be so unpopular that we will be at odds with normal thinking. It will be as if it were crazy. I mean, this is a characteristic of the last days. And, and I, think, uh, I think it's noteworthy that it's, it's, it's placed here. Don't become a cynical scoffer. Don't allow that pressure to, uh, to, to influence us where it just becomes too much to hold on to this belief that Christ will return. Matthew chapter 24, let's not forget Matthew 24 and verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Simply, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. It will happen. It will happen if God's word is true. But apparently, suspicion and outright mockery of what we believe through the pages of the Bible will be a major part of end-time atmosphere. Matthew 24, let's continue to verse 32. 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. We Verse 33, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till these all, all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So there will come a time when all the signs are so clear that it will be clear that that is the time that will, will, will usher in the time of Christ's return. God will make it plain. So therefore, number point number three, be watchful. Be watchful. We can't get so numbed to disaster upon disaster that we end up just becoming, uh, we becoming cynical and becoming a little bit blasé about the whole thing. We need to be watchful. God will make it plain if we are watching. Verse 36 through verse 55 all highlight the importance of being of being watchful, rather verse 51, I guess. Uh, this is this is all made plain. Okay, no, point number four in terms of how do we prepare, and this one will take a, just a few more minutes, and that is make basic preparations. Make basic preparations. If we follow what we read here in these chapters that uh, that succeed these prophecies about Christ's return, we have some things laid out. We look at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, where we read about the wise and foolish virgins, matter of preparation, certainly um, spiritual preparation, but it certainly would be wise to make physical preparation. So when I say make basic preparations, I think that includes basic essentials as would be common sense and, and wise for our living. Uh, we read Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, how the, the wind beat down on this house, but the one that was built on stone survived. Basic preparations. Uh, Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 13. Um, you know, there's a, a one who will do nothing because he says, there's a lion in the street, so I can't do anything. I'm just uh, not possible to do anything. That mentality goes against the grain of godly wisdom, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 12, and also in chapter 22, we read about a prudent man foreseeing evil and making preparations, accommodate that evil that's to come. And we can do that in some different ways. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, we read that he who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. So we need to think of ourselves and our family make preparations for ourselves and our family. We need to think of others as well, don't we? It's not just, well, some people, if I make preparations, well, then maybe if I do, everybody, other people are just going to steal from me. So there's no point. So I'll just, you know, do nothing because it'll be stolen from me anyway. Well, what about helping other people? If we, if we have the ability, if times are such that food is at a premium, we have a hard time living, have a hard time having enough. If we have, if we prepared, it's not just for ourselves, but we can, we can be able to help others. You know, it's ironic in a way, and I, I'm not, my, the whole sermon is not about, about this necessarily, but it is ironic that what we're, what I'm talking about briefly is the type of thing that our grandparents and great grandparents did every year. Canning, drying, pickling, root cellar storage, preserving the harvest against the long, hungry winter. That's what people used to do, actually, before our current times where you just go to the store. In fact, a lot of people, I was just looking up the statistics, 
And uh, a lot of people, I think it was 56% of, is that right? Is it 56%? It was something like that, that, that actually, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was 36% of people eat their meals at home. But there's a great, now it's become more than ever, basically eat out, eat out. Don't have anything in the home because they eat out. Well, if we don't, if we don't learn to prepare ourselves, we may not be able to eat out at some point. Now, that may seem really survivalist or something, but this is, just, this is what our grandparents used to do as part of life. But to us, it's, it's strange and, and odd. How about long-term, short-term? I mean, we've, uh, we've had even some articles written about preparation, basic monetary preparation, whether we have a certain amount of, of cash if all ATM machines are shut down, and, and things like this. Again, the purpose is not necessarily to go into all the details, but to just draw your attention to some of these practical ways. Um, what about food? Actually, Mr. Smith had an article, uh, I don't know if he probably has forgotten about it, but about 10 years ago, called A Standard of Living Shock. This was back in the 2011 May-June uh, Living Church News, I believe. And here, the, the title was, Are You Prepared? Or the, the, begin, the teaser was, Are You Prepared to Endure a Poverty Cycle? And they talked about how the book of Revelation describes a coming time when the prices of needed goods are incredibly high, and he, he, he cites what we read in, in Revelation chapter 6. So in terms of food, what about a bartering economy? Are we prepared to be able to potentially uh, barter what we have to gain food or, or services? Um, how about tools? How about skills? Let me talk about skills for a moment. You know, there is value to learning to be a jack-of-all-trades. Um, you all know Chris Leonard, right? Chris Leonard is popular. I just woke him up, by the way. Chris Leonard is popular. You know why Chris Leonard is so popular? Because he can fix cars. Right? People are popular who can fix things, who can be able to take care of problems. Chris is popular. Now, you know what's going to happen after services, after the Sabbath, he's going to get a dozen phone calls. Hey, Chris, can you, can you take a look at my car? So I didn't intend for that to happen. But I'm using it as an example. People who have skills to do things become very popular when, when, you, when we need help, right? Whether it's fixing cars or whether it's uh, making food. You know, this, now I be, it gets personal. What are you spending your time on? Is it on TV? Is it on video games? Is it on social media? What skills are you and I building? What life skills are we building? What competences can you cook? Can you prepare food? You know, sometimes I hear the words, I know I'm going to offend somebody now, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sometimes I hear the, the word, I hear the, the phrase, oh, I don't cook. And you know what goes in my mind? I bet you eat. <laughs> okay, I bet you like to eat. You know, we, we shouldn't take, we shouldn't take pride in not being able to do things and have competences and skills. We, we should actually we should actually learn, enjoy, savor, learning to build skills to be able to do things. Because there's going to come a time when watching video games or playing on social media will be of no value, brethren. But if you can be able to take a vegetable from the ground or from a basket and make it into something that can be eaten, that will be valuable. There'll come a time. When taking a chicken from the hoof to the plate 
will be a valuable skill. And if we don't want to touch it, then we will starve. I mean, they're they're practical skills, brethren. I don't mean to be, again, this is not survivalist talk. It's it's being able to develop, develop skills and competences because those in tough times, those that have skills and competences will be able to serve other people as opposed to being helpless. So, so developing skills. How about uh, preferences? You know, I think it's interesting when we think about, um, let's say, preferences. I, I, I think about some foods and being able to, to learn to appreciate and at least be able to, to eat different types of foods. It's a beneficial skill to develop, to broaden horizons. I'll tell you why. Because... It, we, are, we are spoiled today with the variety that we have. We're picky. And when our world faces the catastrophic events pictured in the Bible, God will protect us, but he may not cater to us. In other words, if he provides manna for us like he did the Israelites, I don't think he's going to give us 51 flavors. I think we're probably going to have to enjoy whatever he puts before us. But but I think we can be very picky in our world today. We can afford to because we live in such lush prosperity, such that the world has never known. So developing the ability to expand our horizon, you may say, wow, this is this, we're, you're really going far off the, the beaten path here today, but I don't think so. This is practical life. How about, let's go to Philippians chapter 4. How about coping skills? Can you and I deal with discomfort? Can we go without How do we deal with not getting our wants and our way? Philippians chapter 4 is an example of a number of scriptures that that, that focus on on coping skills. Where we read Philippians chapter 4, for example, and verse... Uh, verse 11, I'm breaking right into the context here, but he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content... 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, we read how, how uh, uh, Paul said to Timothy, having food and raiment, let us therewith be therewith content. Uh, I'm sorry, let us be there, therewith content. The, the idea of, of being able to cope. How, how good are we at coping? How good are we at coping with discomfort, with lack of preference? How, how, are we able to do that? Are we, are we so spoiled that we can't deal with something that's beyond our comfort zone. Rather, when we are in tough times, when we face difficult times, coping skills are going to be very important. We read the same thing in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where we read, Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, because... He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, we don't live in a world that values being contented. We live in a world that is saturated with, you need more. Your problems will be solved by having this thing that you don't have. That's the world in which we live. But a world that values being content with what we have, with being able to cope, that's that's not a familiar world to us. There are valuable commodities that will help us as we prepare for difficult times. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1. I would say valuable commodities would include godly wisdom. 
Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of, wisdom, of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The prov- this is the, the introduction to godly wisdom. And, and in difficult times... Knowing how to navigate, knowing how to make decisions may, that really may impact a lot of people, impact our loved ones, impact us greatly, making wise decisions that are guided by God, not by our own, our own desires, that's, that's going to be very important. So another, another, uh, characteristic of what we, of what we need in terms of, of skills. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to give a couple more in my, my list here. Hebrews chapter 10. And a familiar section here where we read about holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23 of Hebrews 10. For he who promises is promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up good love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. The reason I'm reading this is because we need our brethren. We need to develop those ties, those bonds. We need to be connected with our brethren. That helps us in difficult times. As we face calamity, as we face uh, times when when things are, are are rough, when we don't, when food prices double and redouble and redouble, and and we have a hard time having enough, when we can share, when we know who has a little more of something and can be able to share, and we have a little more of something, you know, this is not, brethren, this is not so far off if you simply read the news. Now, am I like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling, or am I simply just being practical? And, and, and challenging you to think about the practical life that the Bible actually speaks to. This, this connections between each other, this, this is, is critically important. So we seek to get to know each other, be patient with each other, um, not offended. We read in Matthew 24 that offenses will be prevalent, frankly, at the end. So therefore... It's important to know each other because what you, if you've ever noticed when you know somebody, you give them a little more of the benefit of the doubt, don't you? If you don't know them, you don't talk with them, you don't know where they're coming from, it's a little bit harder to be, be patient with them, but it makes all the difference in the world where we, we know where they're coming from. We look, we look on things differently. And ultimately, I'll, I'll conclude my list here in Matthew chapter 6. List of, of characteristics, including skills, including, as I said before, including uh, basic essentials and thinking of of others and our family. These, these basic principles that I'm about which I'm talking. Matthew chapter six, I'll never forget at camp in the SCP when Mr. Mr. Ames um, had a, the class memorize Matthew six verse thirty three. Really, the, the verses preceding this speak specifically to this. Don't worry. Do not worry about your life, verse 25, 
What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. This section, it speaks to not becoming so anxious that we allow ourselves to be consumed by the disaster and the repercussions, but actually we we do have the confidence in God, if we are conducting ourselves wisely, that he'll take care of us, if we're conducting ourselves wisely. And that's what this section really speaks to. Which of you, verse 27, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about clothing then? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Ultimately, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We need to keep our eye fixed on the goal. You know, in a way, Chicken Little's story is is fatally flawed. Now, there may be a kernel or an acorn of truth to the moral of the story. That was a joke, by the way. A kernel or an acorn, okay? There, there may be an acorn of truth to the story. We, we, we don't want to become frazzled. We don't want to become frantic. We don't want to be alarmist at what is not alarming. We must consider Christ's warning not to be deceived. And to bring to mind another fable, we don't want to be crying wolf. But with all these qualifiers being said, the sky is going to fall. The day will come when the sky does fall. And we do have a job to warn of the fact that this is going to happen. We have some difficult days ahead of us. But the dark days and dramatic catastrophes will be followed by a wonderful event that will change the course of history as the world one more time pivots, and this time toward better days. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we read about this time, this event, that will, in a, mat, in a, in a short order of time, will change everything one more time. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. This is the event we're we're looking toward that we hope for. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, So comfort one another with these words. And they do bring comfort, don't they? They do bring comfort. History is full of of moments. Some of those moments go on and on and on, seem like they're never going to change. But some moments are dramatic. Some moments are even catastrophic. We read about those moments in the Scriptures. They're for real. They will come. We have a responsibility to warn. Maybe we'll be accused of being like Chicken Little. But the reality is that one day the sky will fall.